Warren Buffett once said that if someone is enjoying shade from a tree, then someone planted a tree a long time ago. And he used it in the context of finances and trying to, to help future generations and recognizing some of the, the great pr- privileges and blessings that a person has in, uh, in receiving money passed down to them. But as you can imagine, not every generation appreciates what they received. When it comes to money, a fool and his money are soon parted. Uh, one study said that 70% of wealthy families lose their, health, their wealth by the second generation. So they could have had hundreds of millions of dollars in the next generation. It's gone. They basically die with nothing. And by the third generation, 90% of wealthy families will have had all of their wealth used up. What causes a younger generation to squander an inheritance? Of course, we could talk about money and and the importance of stewarding the money that's been given to us, but I want to focus on the spiritual inheritance that we have received. At our church, we have a great treasure that has been handed down to us by the apostles and the prophets. We have the true word of God. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the body of Christ. We have a history of this church that is long standed on solid biblical principles and has established something that sometimes can become, be, can become comfortable for us and we can become complacent. And there's a possibility that, that the next generation doesn't see it in the same way. It's possible that we are only one generation removed from squandering our spiritual inheritance. And if you don't think that that's likely for someone or some group of people as serious as we are about the scriptures and about truth and about holiness, then stick with me this morning as we look at Old Testament Israel and how quickly they squandered their spiritual inheritance. We're going to be looking at a chapter in Judges this morning, but I'd like to start by setting the scene for our passage in Joshua. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. And while we're turning to Joshua, I'll introduce the book of Judges. Judges is the book that follows Joshua. Joshua is all about obedience and great success. We call a lot of what's going on in the first 10 or 12 chapters the conquest of Israel. God powerfully works through them and and even apart from them, to defeat the enemies, sometimes in spectacular, miraculous ways, sometimes in ordinary ways. As Israel settles in the land of Canaan, they they find that the people and culture and even the gods of the Canaanites are now appealing. This is amazing because if we think about the history of Israel up until this point, they had been in Egypt for 400 years, promised that, that they would come to this land And when you have a group of Israel just a year removed from this great exodus that they had seen and been a part of and and brought the spoils from it, just a year removed from that, they're standing on the edge of the Jordan, ready to cross over, or actually in the south land. They're, They're ready to cross over into the land, but they don't believe that God can actually deliver them. The spies are sent, come back, 
besides Joshua and Caleb. And so God says, well, I can wait. I'm going to wait around for another generation that will trust me, that will have confidence in me, that will believe in the promises that I have for them. And so this, this group comes along. But somehow, in just a few short years, the conquest is over. The land is not fully occupied like it should have been. And the period of Judges starts. The period of Judges lasts for 350 years. And it records a transition from two great leaders, two of Israel's greatest leaders, Moses and Joshua, to a time when Israel would be ruled by kings, beginning with Saul and David. And during this period of Judges, Israel was largely without a clear leader. The the refrain that you hear throughout Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How could this happen? How could Israel go from such confidence and dependence upon God to forgetting him? to the next generation completely abandoning him. These leaders that God would send to deliver Israel during the time of the judges were known as judges or deliverers. They would come along and rescue Israel from the oppression that they brought upon themselves because of their sin. And so the first two chapters in Judges give us an introduction, and then chapters 3 through 18 of Judges We see the cycle repeating of Israel falling into sin, then they're oppressed by their enemies, then they cry out to God, and then God raises up a deliverer to deliver them, and it goes back to the beginning. They sin against God, they are oppressed, they cry out for a deliverer, and God sends one. The book concludes with the epilogue that talks of the kind of debased living that that takes place during these three and a half centuries of of godless living. The book of Judges, we're not clear who wrote the book of Judges because the author is not told to us, and we don't get any indication from New Testament writers like sometimes we do for other Old Testament books, but Judges was probably written at the beginning of the, the period of the kings because in the, a few in several places that I've mentioned, it says there's no king in Israel, which implies that during the time of the writing, it, there, were, there was a king in Israel. And this book of Judges is written to provide a history of the chronological events that happened between the leaders of Israel, namely Moses and Joshua, and the kings of Israel, Saul and David and others. And God is planning to put a king over Israel, and he's going to rule them with a single king. But Judges is written to to kind of show the chronological events and also to show the consequences of disobedience and apostasy. If Joshua is about success and obedience, Judges is about apostasy and disobedience. So what, what does that look like when we start to turn away from God? What is our responsibility in this generation of people who are faithful to God, who want to serve God? What is our responsibility with regard to the next generation? Don Howell's description of Judges, I think, is good. He says, Judges is about God as the exclusive deliverer of Israel and that he delights to use weak and flawed people to accomplish his purposes. God 
doesn't give up on his plan for Israel. He doesn't give up on his plan for human history. He uses weak and ordinary and often flawed people like Jephthah, Samson, Gideon. God can accomplish great things through weak and flawed people. So let's look at the context of Judges. The the long-awaited promised land is just within reach of the children of Israel, just a few months after Israel was rescued from Egypt. They're standing on the edge of the south land, ready to enter. Forty years pass while the next generation comes up who actually does believe God. And here are the promises that we find in Joshua 3. And these are important for what we're going to look at in in Judges, the section that we're going to look at in Judges. Judges Sorry, Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So here's Israel on the brink of this, of, of receiving this great promise that they had been long awaited, uh, waiting for. God gives them this promise. No one is going to be able to stand before you all the days of your life. So, The next verses talk about, be strong and courageous. Trust in me. I'm going to give you the land. You just follow me. It's interesting, the very first battle that they have is the Battle of Jericho, and it's it's kind of an unconventional battle strategy, right? They didn't have to learn military tactics. They simply needed to obey the clear word of God, which is what he says in verse 8. Don't let this law depart from your mouth, but, but... Meditate on it day and night. If you can focus mostly on my word and depend upon it as truth, then then you're going to have victory. And so they walked around Jericho, and the walls came down, and they won the victory. And God in Joshua follows through on his promise. He does some amazing, amazing things by driving out the Canaanites for them. After the major cities were defeated in Joshua 10, moves on to chapter 11 to talk about the distribution of the land. But all the Canaanites had not been removed. The major cities, they were taken care of. All the major strongholds in in Canaan were taken care of. But now each tribe had a responsibility in their area, in their location, to drive out the rest of the Canaanites. So how are they going to do? How are they going to receive this great inheritance from God? And how is it possible that they could squander all of this just in a matter of time after Joshua dies? We start to get a glimpse into the answer towards the end of Joshua. But before we go there, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, one book earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 20. And here's what they were supposed to do. Here's what Israel was supposed to do. After the conquest was finished, they were supposed to complete the process. After the formal battles and all the the collective tribes of Israel are done fighting, now they're supposed to individually, as tribes, do the work. Notice Deuteronomy 20, verse 
16. I'll start in 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these people uh, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And then here's the reason why. It sounds like, why would God... Tell them to do this. But here's the reason why. Verse 18. So that they, the Canaanites and all these other people groups, may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done to their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Here's God's message to them. If you don't drive them out, they will live among you, and you will adopt their false worship practices. And so wipe them out completely. This is my command to you. Now turn to Joshua chapter 17. So this was their responsibility. Joshua 1 through 11 shows the battles. The main battles are over. Now notice what happens in chapter 17. The conquest lasted for about seven years. And notice the tribe of Manasseh, one of Joseph's sons, where the tribe of Manasseh found itself in chapter 17, verse 12. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And how does Joshua respond in verse 15? He said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Shean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours also. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its farthest borders, it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron and they are strong. Now, he's not saying you have inherent power in yourself. He's saying, I'm confident in the promise of God. No one is going to be able to stand before you, Manasseh, all the days of your life. So take up the land that's been given to you. Well, we can't go in the forest. It's too strong. And then if we go in the valleys, they're, they're, they got the chariots. And Moses is like, did you for, or Joshua was like, did you forget what God did in these last seven years with us? And so the Canaanites ended up living among the people of Manasseh. Manasseh forgot about two important truths that Joshua remembered, and that is that the hand of the Lord is mighty, Joshua 4.24, and no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua 1. So we start to see a glimpse of Israel's failure. Now we can turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. 
Let me read the first 10 verses here so we can get a sense of what's going on in Judges. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. So what begins here in these first 15 verses is, is a partial disobedience. So not full obedience. Not like I know what you told me to do, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go a little bit lower than that. Joshua dies around 1390 B.C., and the people of Israel ask, who's going to f- fight for the Canaanites? Who's going to fight these Canaanites? And God responds by saying, notice, verse 2, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into his hand. So that's singular. He's saying, you, Judah, go up. It seems like Judah is not confident that they can win with just them and God. It seems to me that they need some kind of other support from their fellow tribe. And so they ask Simeon to go with them. They say, listen, we'll do a little deal here. You go with us, we'll go with you. We'll have a little bit of, of backup just in case you know, God doesn't fully help us. But God said, Judah, you're going to win. I'm going to give them to you. Now God does allow them to win. We may have all sorts of ideas for how to accomplish something that God tells us to do. We might think we know better than God, but we have to guard ourselves against a kind of sloppy obedience that's going to be further played out in the rest of this text. Where is the faith in this response? We, we can easily fall into a similar kind of trap. We, we, we like to mostly obey. I know God says to be holy because he's holy, but, you know, I, I'm holy most of the time. I'm certainly holy when I'm around other people, when I'm at church. And so what's the big deal? The big deal is that no one likes someone who's mostly faithful. How do you think your wife would like it if you were only mostly faithful to her? Come on, honey. I mean, just a few times. I'm mostly faithful to you. God is all about total obedience, exclusive allegiance. Or what if the Marines' motto was partem fi, fi, partem fi, partially faithful, right? 
You know, we, we have loyalty to our country for the most part. No, it's Semper Fi. Always faithful. We demand exclusivity when it comes to marriage and when it comes to our country, but then somehow we think God is okay when we're just partially faithful, when we kind of massage what he's told us to do. We have clear instructions of what we're supposed to do, and we kind of we fudge it a little bit. I mean, that, that should be good enough. It should be acceptable enough. It's like the blind sacrifices and uh, the blind and lame sacrifices in Malachi. Judah and Simeon further actually don't do what they're supposed to do with the king of Bezek. They're supposed to kill him. They're supposed to wipe them all out. But instead, they humiliate him. They prevent him from being able to run away. They cut off his big toes and they cut off his thumbs. But remember what the command was. You need to wipe them all out. Because if you don't, you're going to, they're going to live among you and you're going to become like them. So God effectively is saying what he said to, Sam, to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. You need to wipe them out. And it's not ours to question God or to come up with our own way. We need to obey God precisely. When it is clear what he's called us to do, we need to follow. And Judah and Simeon didn't do that. And so they have this victory. God delivers them into the hands. The king eventually dies. We don't know how he dies. Maybe he died from natural causes or some kind of infection or something. In verses 11 through 15, Caleb makes a deal with Othniel in order to get some help in fighting. And then what was partial obedience in verses 1 through 15 moves to... It was partial uh, obedience or partial disobedience. So it's like just below full obedience. Now it turns to just barely obeying in verses 16 through 26. Partial obedience. Just if you put it on a scale, the, the first one is like, it's almost there. Not where it ought to be, but it's almost there. Down here, it's like, well, we'll just do the minimum possible. Notice the partial defeat of the hill country. Verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon and his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, Philistine cities. Verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. This is what Manasseh was saying. We can't, we can't do this. Joshua's like, yes, you can. Go get the land. Now Joshua's dead at this point, so he can't speak to them, but, but they have the same sort of problem. They're not remembering that God is mighty to save and that God had pr- promised something specific to them. No one is going to be able to stand before you all the days of your life. They were in the presence of Joshua when God gave them that promise. That promise was for them, for these people. They're saying, we can't do it. In verses 22 through 26, 
the house of Joseph, the tribes of Joseph, defeat Bethel. But instead of killing all of them, they spare some of the wives. Verse 24, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said, please show us the entrance to the city, and we'll treat, it, treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance of the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built the city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. So what started out as like just a little bit short of full obedience is now like just barely trying to follow God, the minimum possible. And over time, that leads to a near total defiance. And that's what seems to happen in the rest of these tribes in verses 27 through 36. A near total defiance. Manasseh has a partial victory in verses 27 and 28. They did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages. Verse 28, it came about, uh, so notice the end of the verse of 27. So the Canaanites persisted living in that land. And God said that wasn't going to happen. But they had to do something. Verse 28, it came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out. So this refrain keeps coming up. They did not drive them out. They did not drive them out. Forced labor, that seems like something. And God's like, no, it's not. It's not what I asked for. Ephraim, in verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehalal. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho. Verse 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. You see the switch there? It was, because they didn't drive them out, the Canaanites lived among the various tribes. And so it sounds like Canaanites are kind of a small subsection of the tribe. Shouldn't be there, because God told them to drive them out, but, he, but they didn't. But notice what's different in Asher. Verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. It wasn't that the Canaanites were living among the Asherites. It's that the Asherites had some property among the Canaanites. When God had given them this land, it's part of my promise to you. And you need to finish the work that was started. Naphtali, in verse 33, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And the end of the verse says, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. And then Dan, in verses 34 to 36. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan's into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and in Shalobim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, notice, it doesn't say they drove them out, or they destroyed them, but they became forced Labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. So, how is Israel doing what God has commanded? Does it feel like this is still part of the conquest anymore? It's been a long road for Israel. They, they just complete, completed seven years of conquering the land, seeing God do amazing things. 
after God had delivered them from Egypt, led them through the Red Seas, destroyed this great powerful empire of Egypt, and they finally come to the land that God has promised, and Joshua dies and they squander it because they weren't willing to trust God to finish off the Canaanites. So let's think about two principles this morning. First, we, like Israel, are susceptible to squandering God's blessing. We are susceptible to squandering God's blessing. Let me have you turn to, to keep your place here. We'll, I think we'll come back here, but Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's this great passage in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses warns Israel about the danger of forgetting God. And this, this passage seems to be unnecessary. I mean, who is going to forget all the great things that God has done for them? I mean, after a conquest, and, and before that, after an exodus, the, the great plagues that come on Egypt and marching through on dry ground through the Red Sea, I mean, who is going to forget God? Why, Moses, would you have to give this kind of exhortation? In verse 10, Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten, eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Moses predicted that if they got to a place where they became fat on God's blessings, that there was a possibility that they could turn away. Friends, is it possible for us to forget God after all the great things that he has done for us and in this church? Is it possible for us to forget God? I would say without regular exposure to God's revelation, proper meditation on it, we are susceptible to forgetting it. We're susceptible to squandering away what we have enjoyed for so long. We take an opportunity to move towards faithlessness, towards partial or obedience. And before long, we're completely punting away everything that God has given to us. We don't give too much thought, I, I don't think, to squandering God's blessing because in one sense, I don't think we, we really see a lot of active opposition against us. Perhaps that's changing in the days and years ahead. But if there are active opposition, then we could reseed seat ourselves on a strong foundation but as one man once said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I think the, 
Our failure will not necessarily come from active opposition, although it could, and us kind of shrinking away from trouble and and persecution. But rather, our failure could come from partial obedience or simply standing still. It will come when we only partially obey God. And perhaps we may make it safely to glory as we persevere in, in the Christian life, but the next generation... We just assume they know God like we do when they don't. We just assume they've seen and appreciated all the things that we've seen and appreciated about God. And they don't because we haven't told them. And so we, the warning for us is that we are susceptible to squander God's blessing. And so that means, secondly, we must keep fighting. The Christian life is very much like the conquest of Canaan. There are times of unbelievable victory and also surprising failure. Turn back to Judges. I want to show you chapter 2. Kind of the Paul Harvey rest of the story kind of thing. You know, we see this part of it, but, but how does this turn out? Here's part of the record of Israel's life after they failed to take the land that they were supposed to take. Verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall not tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. Or, I'm sorry, you shall tear down their altars. It's a critical mistake that I just made there. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not, uh, I, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And then skip down to verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. It's possible for us to squander what we have by not embracing it ourselves all the way till the end and in not passing it down to the next generation because there, there could be another generation that comes up behind us who does not know the Lord, nor the things that he has done for his people. We, like Israel, are capable of forgetting God, of becoming too proud, becoming too fat with the blessings that we have received. But Christians, like he was with Israel, God is on our side. 
God will have the victory. He will have the victory through people who will not stand still. He will do it through people who are not asking the question, what is the minimum thing I can do in order to be in a right relationship with God, but with people who are going to say, what is the most that I can do to glorify God? How can I give my body as a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable? God has promised that he would use his word to take us to the next level of spiritual glory as we gaze on the word, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so when we face difficulty, when we're trying to focus on the promises of God and look at the next thing in front of us and it doesn't look like we can win, there's no greater truth that you and I can cling to in those times than that God is with us. And Israel started to forget that over time. They started to subtly see these battles as their own victories. They subtly started to rely on themselves and each other in order to win these victories, rather than on the God who made the promise. In many ways, we are like Israel in that we are quick to partially obey and we move towards forgetting God. But on the other hand, we are unlike Israel in that the best that Israel had was a good deliverer who would eventually die. For centuries, they would follow leaders who who might succeed for a time. They might actually be godly. Others were finite and sinful, but they all died. And we stand on this side of the cross And we have a perfect deliverer. We have the perfect redeemer. He has come. He has conquered death. He has ascended to heaven. He has left us the spirit so that we can respond to God's word in a greater way with faith and obedience. And so we are unlike Israel in that we have so much more revelation and so little excuse to forget God to start to rely on ourselves, to to start to move towards partially faithful. Partial obedience is a path towards failure, and it's a path towards the next generation losing this great blessing that that, that has been passed down to us. God expects, deserves, and demands full and complete obedience. Obviously, we can't do this perfectly, but we strive for this. We don't take this mindset of, well, God's because God is such a forgiving God, I I can just live however I, I want. We must guard ourselves and our hearts. We must be careful not to squander these blessings by standing still. We must be faithful to pass them on. And so, Christian, keep fighting against sin. Keep fighting against the temptation to give in. Ask God to strengthen your weak knees. Keep expressing your faith in constant prayer and keep obeying even in the face of opposition or when it doesn't make sense. And like Israel, we often look around at our difficult circumstance and ask, is God really among us? 
mean, as I'm facing this extremely difficult trial, is God really among us? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe not out loud. Maybe you've thought, you know, if God were present, things would be different. They'd be better. Why are these, for Israel, why are these people still here? Where is God in all this? And for us to ask God, is the Lord really among us? For Israel to do that is like, he's, he's leading you along. He's, he's given you all these victories. Did you forget about them? And now you have responsibility, so move. How can you ask whether God is with you or not? What, what a shameful thing to think about. For Israel and for us to question God's presence when he's shown himself so powerfully. It'd be like asking your mother who's working hard in the kitchen to get the, get the meal ready for the evening while she's standing at the stove. Are we having dinner, dinner tonight? Be honest, ladies. Has that happened before? Usually it's from the husband, not the, not the kids, unfortunately. But are we having dinner tonight? Why is that such a repulsive question at a time when, when it's asked? Well, because she's actively working to make a meal while it's being asked. And she's been making dinner for children for, for their whole lives. So for them to ask, are you going to make another dinner? And because it also accuses her of inactivity at the very moment that she is working and serving you. What an insult. How could you ask, while I'm standing here, whether I'm going to provide dinner or not? And for us, it's simply amazing that God has been providing for Israel all along. Notice, let's Look back at Judges 1, and let me just show you several places where that shows up. Verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 4. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. Verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. Verse 22. Likewise, the house of Joseph excuse me, went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So what we're getting is indications that along the way, as they're gaining victory, as they're winning the battles, that's God. And if we think about it in our own lives, it's not that alarming at all. I mean, let's be honest. Do we ever question God's presence? Do we ever wonder if God has abandoned us? Do we want ever focus too much on our current circumstances that God seems so far away? And we interpret that to be God as unconcerned. For Israel, they had clear evidence. And they were like, well, yeah, if we were Israel, it would be a lot more clear. It would be like, well, yeah, he gave those promises and he gave them the conquest, and of course. But that's not us. We don't have the hornet going before us in all these battles. God's not making the sun stand still for us when I pray. So what evidence do I have that God is even here? What evidence in the midst of this difficult circumstance that I'm facing right now? 
do I have that God is here? Because it doesn't feel like he's here. If he were here, it'd be different. It feels like he's unconcerned and far away. And it's at these times in which we need to double down on the things we know about God and remind ourselves about the, the evidence that we have of God's presence. And what evidences do we have? Well, we have the evidence of previous provision. Has God provided for you before in abundant ways? Has God provided for his people throughout the scriptures? Cling to those truths and reminders. Remind yourself about how God has answered prayer before for you. Remember the times in which you prayed for a long time, months and years perhaps, and God came to your rescue. Does he not hear you now? The evidence of previous provision. And the greatest provision, by the way, is described for us in Romans 8.32, that he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So for us, the question whether God loves us or he cares for us or he's near us really spurns the work that Jesus did on the cross. He showed his love to us. He was there for us. He opened the veil so that we could enter in and have this relationship. The fact that you're praying right now suggests that he is near you because you couldn't come to him apart from the work that Jesus has done. An evidence of previous provision. The second evidence that comes to mind is the guidance and comfort of the word of God. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know what we need in times of trouble? We need God to remind us, to give us light for the next step. We don't have light like a floodlight that lights up the whole forest in front of us, but we have enough light to be able to see the next couple of steps. God, what does faithfulness look like today for me? And your word tells me what that looks like. You have given evidence that you are near by leaving your word for us. And third, the promise of the presence of the triune God. But I don't feel like the triune God is present. Well, that doesn't matter as much as what is true. So remind yourself about what is true. God the, pro- God the Father promises his presence with you in Hebrews 13, 5, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's for you. That's for the church of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He's on your side. Even though he feels like he's so distant and unconcerned right now, he's actually near and he cares. And the Son, we have the promise of God the Son, Matthew 28.20. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think Pastor Ben mentioned this in his prayer. That while Jesus is on his throne, he's also here. He's near. We have the Lord Christ with us, and he will not leave us all the way till the end, even when it doesn't feel like it. And we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he has been given to us as a pledge, a down payment of our inheritance. He lives within us. He moves among us. He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, that God does care, that God is on our side. And so if the Lord is for us, then what can man do to us? What are we fearing? 
Why are we afraid about what's going on in front of us? God hasn't left us. We don't have to manipulate the circumstances to make them fit what we want. We just move in obedience and trust, following what God has told us to do. And in those evidences, the evidences of previous provision and the guidance and comfort of the Word of God and the promise of the triune God, did you notice that God never promised that you would avoid trouble? He never promised that, hey, it's, not, it's going to be super easy. No, he's saying, no one is going to be able to stand before you all day of your life, Israel, but you still got work to do. You, you got to do something. You got to trust me in, in following me, following through on these commands that I've given to you. But even though God hasn't promised that you would avoid trouble, he's promised you something much better that when trouble comes, and when it gets more severe, sure, God may not remove your trouble. We can still pray in that way. And we should pray in that way. In fact, God sometimes increases our trouble like he did with Job. But know this. These promises are true. He is with you. His word is true and faithful. He has delivered in the past. He can do it again. And, and even if it doesn't go away, even if you struggle with this trial for the rest of your life, even if you can't get out of this trial, he's going to be right near, near you the whole time, no matter how long the troubles last. He will walk through you all the way to the valley of the shadow of death. So you don't have to fear any evil, because God is with you. Our problem is that his presence and promise and ongoing provision are not enough for us. We want more than that. We want answers. We want control. We want to know the future. We want clear and ongoing manifestations of God. Just like Israel is kind of like, hey, show me for real. Or Gideon later is going to say, hey, I know you told me this is going to happen, but hey, can you, can you give me some more proof? And we can be that way as, as well. We, we want to throw out a fleece. See if God is really serious about being near to me, if he's really serious about fulfilling these promises that he's given to us. And the problem is that when we question him this way, I think, I wonder if God responds like the mother who's cooking the evening meal. How can you ask me that? Why do you ask me if we're going to have dinner when I've been here from the beginning? I'm here now. I'm working for your benefit. There are clear signs all around you of my presence. Now, thankfully, mothers are much more gracious in responding this way, but this is, imagine, this is what I imagine they must be thinking. All the clear signs around you of my presence and my care for you, even at this moment, while you stand there unsatisfied, I am cooking your meal. Go back to your room. And then she says the same thing to the kids. Friends, we have received an enormous blessing. We have a great treasure in the Word of God and our salvation and this church. And God will have the victory. God will accomplish what He wants, and He's going to do it through people who are serious about obedience, who are serious about holiness, who are serious about not standing still, who are 
seeking to do the maximum that they can for God. In many ways, we're like Israel in that we are quick to forget God's power and his promises and very good at partial obedience and partial faithfulness. But aren't you thankful that God's posture toward us is not partim fi, partially faithful? God deserves nothing less than our full obedience. And as we do this, this includes us passing down what we've learned and been reminded of and highlighting the glories of God to our children and to the next generation, the children of our church. God expects and demands complete obedience, so so don't squander God's blessing. Maybe you're feeling like, man, all my best acts of spiritual good are behind me. I've done a lot of good things for God, not in a proud way, but but really, God has been faithful to me throughout. And now it's time for the younger crowd to come up and start doing those things. So I'll just leave that to them. But if you're still here and you're on the older side, the, the, towards the end of life, you still have a lot of work to do. We need you. Our children need you. And you have children and grandchildren of your own, perhaps, that need you. Take that seriously. So there's... We're potentially only one generation removed from squandering what God has given to us. And so keep fighting against sin. Keep persevering yourself. Keep praying to God and asking Him for help. Keep depending on Him. Keep seeking full obedience. Link arms with other believers to help you do that and help them do that as well. And most of all, remember that God has not left you alone. He is on your side. He is with you even in the face of evil that you are experiencing right now. Let's pray. Father, if if we could, maybe we would just need one reminder not to forget you, and that would be enough. But, But instead, we have constant reminders throughout the Scriptures to remember, to not forget. And the, the amazing part is that even though you were behind all the good that's ever happened in our lives, we can look back on the good things that have happened and take credit for it ourselves. That was all me, or mostly me. And so it's good to have a group of people in the scriptures who help us be reminded about the responsibility that we have to keep fighting against sin, to keep being faithful, to keep obeying, to stand up and not quit. And Lord, the life of a Christian is is tiring. It's weary. It's wearisome. It's an unending battle. But our hope is not in what we can receive in this life only, but in the life to come. The promises that await us. In Hebrews 11, we're reminded that all of These great believers died without receiving the promise. And so we look to the next life and the promises that are there. And that means we can accept anything that comes our way. We don't want it. We don't wish it on people. We wish we didn't have to experience trials, but we can actually have a settled confidence of joy in them because we know that they are designed for your glory and for our good. So please remind us of that. Thank you that Jesus will be our king reigning on David's throne in the kingdom. And at that time, it will be clear who is on 
his side and who is not. But right now, the, the minds of unbelievers and profess, some professing believers are deceiving and being deceived. And so, Lord, help us not to give up. Help us not to take for granted what we have been given. Help us to pass on what has been handed down to us. You deserve and demand nothing less than our full obedience. Lord, we can only do this with your strength, so give us help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.